Shalom and welcome to the UMJC's weekly Torah commentary series. I'm Dave Nickel from Congregation Ruach Israel in Needham, Massachusetts. This week we're discussing Parshat Korach, which begins in Numbers chapter 16. Our Parsha for this week, Parshat Korach, is named for the man whose actions precipitate its primary drama. I quote from Numbers 16, verses 1 and 2. Now Korach, son of Izhar, son of Kohat, son of Levi, betook himself, along with Datan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben, to rise up against Moses, together with 250 Israelites, chieftains of the community, chosen in the assembly, men of repute. End quote. On its face, the narrative seems simple, an old-fashioned rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korach and his allies can be cast as bad dudes who cause trouble for whatever reason and are dealt with. A careful reading of the story, however, leaves questions, and our tradition is all about careful readings and questions. And the Lord is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourselves above the Lord's congregation? End quote. According to the commentator Ibn Ezra, part of what's going on here is a transition from a system where firstborn sons were dedicated to God and had the privilege of bringing offerings on behalf of their family to a system where the priesthood is consolidated within a single family, the descendants of Aaron. In Exodus 13:2, God commands, Consecrate to me every firstborn. But later he switches them out for the tribe of Levi. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn among the Israelite people, and the Levites shall be mine, the Lord's, from Numbers 3, 44, and 45. Ibn Ezra believes that Datan and Aviram are involved because their tribe of Reuben lost its firstborn status to Joseph. But whatever his motivations, Korach's rhetoric is brilliant. All Israel is holy, he says. Why should one group, Aaron's descendants, be considered more holy? These boundaries don't make any sense to him. Moses doesn't buy it. Korach himself, as a Kohathite, like Moses and Aaron, is benefiting from these very boundaries. You may remember that their clan was given special roles in carrying the Mishkan. Moses rebukes Korach and his followers, saying, quote, Hear me, sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and has given you access to him to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and to minister to the community and serve them? Now that he has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? End quote. This language of giving access, the word hikliv, perhaps better translated as bringing near, is repeated at various points in the dialogue. The debate is over who will have access, be close to God. What is unfortunately forgotten is that it is God who is doing the bringing near. The fundamental point here is that to undermine the holiness of the priests is to undermine the very election of Israel. The idea that God has a special relationship with a chosen people is deeply challenging to some. Even Korah himself, an Israelite and a Levite, the elect of the elect, struggles with the idea that God's mode of redeeming the world is through calling out certain people, but not others necessarily. Only last week in Parshat Shalach Lecha, we read of the mitzvah of setting aside a part of the bread we bake as a gift for the Lord. When Paul references this commandment, he applies it to a chosen segment of the people of Israel. If the first fruit is holy, so is a whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Recall that holiness means separateness. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs sees the Bible's focus on a single people as one of its essential ideas. It's a quote from his book, The Dignity of Difference. Quote, 
God, the creator of humanity, having made a covenant with all humanity, then turns to one people and commands it to be different, teaching humanity to make a space for difference. God may at times be found in human other, the one not like us. The unity of God is to be found in the diversity of creation. Similarly, Israel must reflect this idea of holiness and redemptive difference, both in its relationship to other nations and internally. But Korach is not on board with this vision, and he's not the only one. Moses is implementing part of God's plan for redeeming the world throughout the middle books of the Torah. In Exodus, a people is made separate and pulled out of Egypt, and a physical mishkan is built. In Leviticus, the sacrificial system is arranged and organized. In Numbers, the people themselves are ordered, structured in a way appropriate to their calling, even, even physically as they're camped around the mishkan. Just as any organization structure needs to fit its purpose, so Israel needs to be reshaped. Lest we think that Korach was just a bad egg, we find that even after the ground swallows Korach and his allies, the Israelites continue the revolt, though their complaint has, ch complaint has changed a little bit. I quote, Next day the whole Israelite community railed against Moses and Aaron, saying, You two have brought death upon the Lord's people. Number 17.6 The Israelites' response angers God, who sends a plague that kills more than 14,000 of them. But even that doesn't seem to convince everyone, because afterwards we still need another miracle. Each tribal chieftain hands over his staff, and only Aaron's buds and blooms, confirming that God, not Moses, is choosing Aaron. Indeed, looking for a motive or primary complaint of the rebels may be a fruitless endeavor. It may be simply that people don't like change. Here I'll quote Wikipedia on the topic of change management. One of the major factors which hinders the change management process is people's natural tendency for inertia. Just as in Newton's first law of motion, people are resistant to change in organizations because change can be uncomfortable. So just as Moses attempts to reshape Israel into a holy nation, one that is even structured in these concentric circles of escalating holiness, he's colliding with established interests, and asking the people to change, which, as noted above, people are not always good at. Maybe he would benefit from a crash course in change management. In my experience, the most important characteristic for anyone attempting to make change is patience. Whether it's making a company more customer-focused or addressing systemic injustice in society, change always takes time. I can just imagine Martin Luther King Jr. commiserating with the prophet Elijah at this very moment, saying something like, man, the moral arc of the universe is even longer than I expected. And Elijah says, Martin, you have no idea. How will it end? When will there be justice or peace? At some point, there's little difference between having patience and having faith. To use corporate speak, Korah is not aligned with the vision God has for Israel. The big question for us reading his story today is, are we aligned with God's vision for Israel? If becoming aligned requires us to change or to forego privilege that we are accustomed to, can we do it? Do we have the humility to adjust if we suspect we might be missing a part of God's vision? What if our goals aren't lined up with his as much as we thought? On the other hand, can we be patient for change, recognizing how rare it is for meaningful change to be achieved in only a generation or two? We will be part of this story regardless, for good or ill, with the grain or against it. Whatever our part, 
The Holy One is still at the work of completing creation, and while we cannot see the end, change is happening. It is not required of us to complete the, the work, but only to play our part. Let's all get on board with the vision and do what we can. Thanks. Shabbat Shalom.